Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on Habits and Hustle, we have James Altisher. This guy is probably one of the most interesting guys uh, I've interviewed. He does it all. He's not only an entrepreneur, he's also uh, a national chess master. He is a stand-up comic. He's written over 20 books. Um, His latest book is called Skip the Line. He is extremely insightful and has a really interesting and fantastic take on how to be successful in life, uh, tons of different theories. Um, he's made millions and lost that lost it multiple times. Um, and I think that you will find this podcast extremely, not just insightful and interesting, but practical. And you will walk away with some great tips of how you could achieve the things that you probably want in your life. Enjoy. First of all, I like to t- I like to say I, I you know I've done a lot of like I've you have like twenty books out. I mean it's like ridiculous how many books you actually have written over the last I don't know twenty five years or so. But you're kind of like the the ev- like the actual real life Forrest Gump. You're like a writer. You're a chess master. You're a comedian. You're an entrepreneur. You're a podcaster. I mean like your life. You've had so many careers that you've kind of just like started and figured things out. And it's kind of like worked out for you more or less, I would say. More or less. I mean, I've had a lot of problems along the way. And I often, I wonder, and I wonder if you wonder this, I mean, you've obviously done different things. Like people, some, some people say, oh, you should focus on one thing and be the best you can be at it. But throughout life, we have many different things that we love, many different things that we're interested in. And Sometimes I wonder, oh, should I have just focused on making money instead of spending six years doing stand-up comedy or thousands of hours doing other stuff that has nothing to do with money or career or whatever? And there's no real answer. It's just I always, when given two choices, I choose the thing I love to do. And sometimes that works out for me. And sometimes it seems like it doesn't, but I would say right now I'm pretty happy overall. Well, no, I, I love that because uh, I talk a lot about how people oh. like to get, um, compa- car- like they kind of get compartmentalized and pigeonholed into one thing. Like I'm, you know, my background is fitness. And so because I'm, you know, have a career that I've been known at in that area, people automatically assume that I'm not able to do other stuff like a strategist or whatever that might be. I think people are much more multi-layered and colorful. It's about attempting and trying and going after things. So I love that 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 is your approach. Now, uh, so you, but you initially started as a writer, correct? Like that's just something that you've always done. You've always loved. Actually, I, I initially started as a computer programmer. So I majored in computer science. I went to graduate school for computer science. And I fell in love with writing and I was literally writing like novel after novel. So, and I wasn't attending any classes. So they kicked me out of graduate school for computer science. <laughs> and I started a company making websites for entertainment companies. So combining my interests in writing and entertainment and computers. So you actually start, so, so you basically like that, isn't that, don't you call that kind of like idea sex is one of your things like you're combining two 
things yeah. as in, into two into two things. But and so let's talk about that. Like you, one of your ha- habits every day, and what you really you talk about in your book, "Skip the Line," which is a great line, which is a great name of a book, by the way. Oh, is you. you're welcome, and I really enjoy reading your book. I found that I found there to be some really great uh, nuggets of practical information and. Uh, ways people can easily integrate that stuff into their lives to, you know, act and to do. And I really enjoyed it. So, um, and I'm not just telling you that because you're a guest on my podcast. No, I appreciate it. I, for uh, me, for me, this has been my favorite book to write. I feel like it's been my most practical book. Really? Okay. So did you write it? Cause I know that you, did you start writing it before the pandemic? Like what was kind of like the, like you've written so many books, what kind of was the, the, the reason that you decided this was, you know, the next one for you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I finished this in the, the book, the first draft in March 2020. So I started writing it before the pandemic, although it fit in nicely with the pandemic, which is a weird thing to say, but it fit in nicely with the pandemic because during the pandemic, a lot of people were thinking, you know what? I don't want to go back to my old life. I really love fishing and not accounting. So I want to be great at fishing and maybe make money from it and whatever. And my book is about how at any age you can uh, change interests, change what you love to do, become one of the top in the world at it and monetize it. So, and I hadn't, I couldn't find any book that was about all of those things. And I know for me, I've changed interests and careers and things that I love to do so many times. And people always told me every single time, James, you can't, you can't do that. Don't even think about it. Like, how are you? You have a mortgage to pay. You have kids to raise. You have things to do. You've been doing this for 10 years. Why would you stop doing that now to do some other weird thing? And I was always, uh, sometimes I would believe them, but sometimes it would agitate me. Like they're telling me they can't do it. They don't know. They're telling me they, I can't do it. They don't know me. Maybe they can't do it and they don't want me to do it because they don't want to know that it is possible to switch interests and switch and do what you love to do and, and maybe make money at it. Maybe not, but figure out a way to survive and and continue your lifestyle and you'll be, you'll be happier. People are always happier doing what they love doing. Oh yeah. Like how did you even, like when did you start the comedian stuff with the standup comedy? Was that like, how many years ago was that? 2015. So and definitely everyone told me, you can't do this. You're like in your 40s uh, at that time and you can't do it. You have to start from the bottom and, and it takes 20 years. Well, six years later, I was touring around the world. And, and, and you know, that's why I called the book Skip the Line is because not only do I give techniques for how to literally skip the line learning so that you could be among the top one, two or three percent in the world, but also how you can your career can you can skip the line because it's very hard to get gigs touring around. And, you know, more recently in the past few months, really, I've slowed down the comedy and, uh, you know, I, I find myself evolving into other things and other interests. Well, what, what I would like, I would like to say that like you're one of your, I was going to say, and then we kind of got sidetracked a little bit. And I found it interesting that you, one of your things is that you write down 10 ideas a day and not even just for yourself, but you do it for like other people, other companies, you send them in to like all sorts of different people. Uh, and it's like you, you have this ab- abundance mindset versus a scarcity type of mindset where 
you know, you share your ideas. A lot of people are nervous about that, right? Because they're nervous that that someone else will like will will take away their opportunity. And how did you kind of like? Um, how do you how do you tell people, or what what do you say is like some good ways and strategies people can kind of get an abundance mindset? Yeah, that's a great question because particularly with ideas, like people think, oh, an idea is so precious. A good I, I when I have a good idea, it's like I'm struck by lightning, and I can't. I have to take care. I can't share it with anybody, or they'll steal it, and it's my one chance to have an idea. And I started writing down ten ideas a day a long time ago. I was dead broke after selling a company for millions. I kind of squandered all the money and was so depressed, even suicidal. And I don't know, just randomly I started, I got a waiter's pad and I started writing 10 ideas a day. And within a few weeks, I noticed I started to be happier and I started to come up with interesting ideas for myself. And the point of writing 10 ideas a day is not that you're gonna have a good idea, but that you're gonna exercise this creativity muscle. It's really hard to think of, of ideas and to think of good ideas. People say ideas are nothing, execution is everything. Execution is very hard too, but execution is only a subset of ideas. I've seen two people with the same idea, one executes poorly, one executes really well. Execution ideas, again, are a subset of ideas. And so, I started writing 10 ideas a day for myself, business ideas, book ideas, just ideas to improve different things. At the time I was losing my home, ideas of where I was gonna live because I was going broke. Uh, and, but, and again, it's just, it's just the exercise that idea muscle. Within a few weeks, a few months, I really felt like I was starting to have decent ideas. And I've been doing this ever since, almost 20 years later, uh, including today. And, uh, but I also started writing ideas for other people. So if I wanted to meet somebody, I didn't, I couldn't just write an email and say, Hey, Warren Buffett, I want to meet you. Um, because Warren Buffett is not going to say, Oh my gosh, James Altucher wants to meet me. You know, hold all my phone calls. James Altucher <laughs> is going to buy me a 60 cent cup of coffee. Like nobody responds <laughs> if you do that. So I started coming up with ideas for other people and sending to them, and I would do the reverse. I would say, no need to contact me. I really am a fan or I admire you because of this, this, and this reason. Here are 10 ideas where I think could improve your business. And I wrote 10 ideas to one guy who was a, a, a well-known financial writer. And I said, here's 10 ideas for articles you should write, and you don't need to write me back. And he wrote back right away and said, these are great ideas, you should write them. So I started all of a sudden, it was the first time I ever got paid as a writer after, after writing for 10 years almost. And then another person I wrote, uh, this, uh, I was interested in the financial industry then, I wrote this guy who was a hedge fund manager and I said, here's 10 strategies you can use for your hedge fund and here's the software I wrote that shows that these strategies are good strategies. And he wrote back right away and said, oh, we should, we should meet, I'd love to meet you. And later on he, gave, you know, invested money with me and I started my own little hedge fund. But those were, I sent around 20 of those emails. Those were the only two that responded. And so most of the time people don't respond, but because of this strategy of writing, thinking of ideas for others, particularly if I was excited about what they were doing, because of this, I've got invited to speak at or tour or consult with Google, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Quora, Amazon, and on and on. It never, it never stops really. I, 
I just had got a response now from somebody because I had ideas for them. And uh, from who? Anyone I know? No, no, it's in a totally unrelated industry. It's uh, related to chess. So, which is which, which I want to talk. Which is your my latest too. interest? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? So I I really like that, but I have a couple of questions about that, right? Because obviously, number one, you're making your own opportunities, right? So you're not just sitting back waiting for someone to, you know, for the phone to ring. You're you're kind of creating right. those opportunities by giving someone a reason to respond versus what a lot of people end up doing is they they email and people email me too. They're like, hey, I need your help, as opposed to turning the tables and giving starting with from a place of you giving as opposed to taking when I feel yeah. that, you know, that that's, that's really interesting because I think that's the worst where they say you don't know them. So the worst is when you don't know them and they say, Hey, can you introduce me to Richard Branson or whatever? <laughs> and yes. the second worst is when you know them and they write you and say, Hey, can you introduce me to Richard Branson? <laughs> yes. um, the third worst is when they say, Hey, you don't know me, but I really like your stuff. And I'll. What do you need help in? And I will help you in it. And I, I feel like that's almost the worst, actually, because don't give me a homework assignment. Like you don't know me, and already you're giving me a homework assignment. Like I don't know what I need. I'm doing everything I can do. So, so I don't. I don't want to first figure out what I need, then figure out what your skill set is, then teach you how to do what I need, uh, and, and on and on. Like that's not good either. Really, the only email is, hey, you, you know, it seems I'm a big fan. It seems like you need this based on my study of you. And here are either some ideas or I've already done it for you. And here it is. And even then I might not respond, not because I'm a bad guy, but because, you know, it's hard to respond to everybody. I'm doing my own things. Oh, absolutely. No, you're 100% right. Like how many times people say to you, you know, I just want 20 minutes to pick your brain to figure out what I want to do with my life. So then it gives you that the pressure now and the onus is on you to figure out their stuff as opposed to coming to you. Right. With, but, you know, and not only that, it's like, it's like their, their philosophy, their mentality. And by the way, we've all had this at some point. I'm not blaming anybody. Absolutely. And, it's we have. and I hear this. Every, their mentality is, oh, it doesn't hurt to ask. Guess what? It totally hurt you to ask because it feels like you don't really respect my time and it feels like you, 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 it doesn't hurt to ask because you don't care about me. You only care about whether it hurts you. It doesn't care. You don't care whether you hurt me. And Absolutely. so, yeah. Well, it's also because time, so I'm just, time is also the most precious um, and most valuable commodity we all have, right? It's, it's not, we don't have tons of time on our hands. And so then it just, it's, it becomes, I get anxiety actually, because I feel like I got to put time into something that's not being benefit. It's just, it becomes a bad, vicious cycle. But the other thing that you're obviously, these 10 ideas, and in your book, by the way, like I swear to you, like it's, it shows, like you have to be very creative in thinking of these things because 10 ideas can sound is a lot, right? Every single day. Yeah. And it's hard. It's, it's not really it's hard. Easy. It's really I, hard. My, my brain starts to literally sweat after idea number seven, even today, been doing this 20 years after idea seven, I'm always, have I gotten to 10 yet? I'm always counting one, two, three, and then I'll do another idea. Did I get to 10? Oh no, it's just eight. And it's ideas one to seven. No problem. Eight, nine, 10 really difficult. Like every time, if you have a good idea list you're working on, 
And it's, again, it's a good way to exercise the brain. Yeah. And you get better at it, I guess, as you can, if you do it every single day. Right. But like, for example, what was your list today? What did you put on your 10, what your 10 today? So my list is, and I I always write on a waiter's pad. uh, My list today was. Why do you write in a, why there? Just a cabinet or this is like, yeah. No, you know, waiter's pad is many reasons. First off, you can't write like a novel on a waiter's pad. So it's just bullets, mm. like 10 ideas. I shouldn't flesh out the ideas. This is just bullets of ideas. So that's what a waiter's pad's made for. And, uh, you know, it keeps me consolidated so I don't write too much. And uh, the other thing is it's a great, it's cheap. This is like a moleskin, whatever, notebooks are $1,000 and this was 10 cents. And <laughs> the, also if I'm in a meeting, and everyone pulls out their fancy notebooks and their fancy pens. And I just pull out the waiter's pad and put it on the table. First off, everyone, someone always says, uh, I'll take fries with that hamburger. <laughs> and and, and say, then they ask me why I have a waiter's pad. And I say, well, I'm, I'm frugal. And people always appreciate it. It's a good way to make me the center of attention at a meeting and to <laughs> express a value that I have that I know they appreciate. And uh, so it starts off the meeting for me on a good on a good note. Right. It's because it's funny. And then, okay. So what are some of the ideas you didn't tell okay, me? So, are- yeah. So, so the list today was, um, I wanted to co- come up with experiments for my podcast, different ways to either expand the reach of my podcast or leverage the content I've created on the podcast. And so, you know, different experiments I can do. So one is I, I, one note was books and I, there was three different ideas for books that I could write. Like I could take all the let's say all the um, podcasts I've done with writers, get the transcripts, edit the transcripts, write an intro and an outro, and I could write a book, Think Like a Writer, based on the many great you know, writers on my, on my podcast, ranging from you know, Judy Bloom to Ken Follett to whoever. So- uh, Judy Bloom, oh my God, I loved her as a kid. Oh my uh, God. I loved you her also. Her? Yeah, and- um, it was right when I was getting a divorce and I said to her, Hey, I, I have to ask you for advice uh, because you're Judy Bloom. <laughs> and I said, I feel like I'm damaged goods right now. And she said, listen to me, you grew, you grew up uh, like you grew up reading me. Right. And I said, yeah. And, and she said, so you have to listen to me. And she said, and she described her own two prior marriages. And she said, third time's a charm. So uh, now I'm married um, with my third wife and it's a charm. So it's great. It's a charm. How long have you been married to your third wife? When did you guys get married? Uh, almost, well, a little over two and a half years. Oh, okay. Wow. So hopefully Judy Bloom, well, how long were you married for, to your first wife and your second wife? About five years each. So All hopefully right. this won't last longer than five years. <laughs> exactly. I'll call you. I'll call you in about three years just to see yeah. where you are. Right. I mean, but that's a good, I'm going to listen to that podcast episode because she was like, I think every, everyone in my, you know, my age, you know, would like loved her. She was like the, the shit back then. I know. I read every, every book from Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing to, yep. you know, Are You There, Garden's Me, Margaret. But then I also liked Forever, which was more of her teenage book. I was in fifth grade at the time. And then Wifey, which was like her adult book. Uh, so I was reading I all of her, all of her stuff. I, I never read any of her adult stuff. Is it as good as the, I guess it's hard to say because you're in a different place in your life, but was her adult books 
Good. Oh, for her, for a fifth grader, her book Wifey was like a porn novel. Like it was great. <laughs> so <laughs> no, but her older stuff, like when she was old, like the older stuff that she did, like um, for older kids or older people or adults, was that stuff good too? I always liked it, but again, I, I read everything. The entire period of me reading Judy Bloom was in fifth grade. So yeah, no, I said true. Me too. Me too. Oh my god, <laughs> I love that you had her on your podcast. Um, Sorry. So you were saying those are the ideas. So basically. So, so yeah, that was like one bullet point. And like another one was, um, uh, uh, oh, I had an I, I idea for uh, a podcast about what you want. What does it mean to have a legacy? But I was going to call up this billionaire who really loves doing art. Like he doesn't, he hates business and he made his billion dollars and he went back to his art. So I was just curious what he wanted. So I wanted to do a, a, a podcast in general about legacy. Uh, and then, oh, I thought of a mini series I would do where every Monday I did an episode called I Was Wrong. And I would take some article I've written where I was passionate about some opinion over the past 20 years, but now I'm admitting I'm wrong and why and what does it mean and so on. So can, can I give you an idea? Because I when yeah. I was doing some research on you, uh, I guess yesterday when I, when I knew you're coming on today, um, I was listening to some some podcasts, like little bits and pieces, and I came across one that you had some phenomenal ideas. You said to some guy, I don't know who it was, what podcast was about, like he was saying how he wanted to be a Joe Rogan and that he realized later on that um, he wanted to have a life that he could see his kids, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So you're saying you were talking about it and you're like, you know, what would it would be an idea for a podcast. You said calling up 10 random people and seeing who would be on whoever you would strike up a conversation with and seeing what kind of conversation you can have with some like random stranger. And that could be the podcast because yeah. you would never know. Like, do you remember that when you said that? Yeah. To somebody? Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, and, and I want to do that. Like I do think everybody's got a story and I think it would be interesting to just either call random people or just sit there on zoom and let people like log in and interview anybody who comes on. And I'm sure everyone out there has an incredible story. It's, I'm convinced of that. So I think that's still an interesting idea. You should do that one that calling up 10 people, just seeing like just calling random phone numbers and seeing if you can get somebody and like have like what kind of conversation can come out of that. What kind of like, I would, I'm sure it would be interesting. I think yeah. I, I really honestly want you to do that. I would listen. Yeah, because it's interesting because not only would people want to hear, hopefully, the interesting stories, but the process itself is interesting. Yes. And I think I think those are the best podcasts where the format is just as interesting as the outcome. Just like the when the when the process towards a goal is as, has as, is as filled with meaning as the goal itself. Absolutely. So then let's talk about this co comedy thing. Cause I I'm obsessed with stand-up comedy and like comics in general. And so, and that is to me the most fearful thing in the world to do, right? Because you're standing up and you've got to be funny in front of a, also like all these strangers. And the, the thing that's the most unfunny or least funny is when people are, are like nervous and uncomfortable and they can't, and they're not funny. So how, yeah. what was, how did you even like start that process? Like, what was that kind of in your brain? Like, Hey, I'm going to do this, like to get even through the fear factor of it. Right. The embarrassment of going up there and not being funny. Oh my gosh. It is so scary. It's ridiculous. And that's the other thing about, I want to mention about doing what you love. People say, Oh, you must be so happy. You do what you love. 
Not at all. <laughs> I would be happy watching TV all day and eating popcorn. But like, that's not what I do. Instead, I choose to do things that I love doing, which means I'm going to suffer a great amount of time. Because let's say you love playing poker. Well, half the time you're going to lose money, even if you're like a great player. So doing what you love means doing hard, difficult things that are difficult to get good at and then difficult to build a career around. And anything that's difficult, there's going to be suffering involved as opposed to just watching TV and not caring at all. But, um, but I love watching TV anyway. But yeah, uh, stand-up comedy was always a fascination of mine. I, I made many comedy. I, my very first company was in the 90s making websites for entertainment companies. I made many co- websites related to comedy. I went to a lot of comedy events. So I was always really interested in comedy. But I was too afraid to go on stage. So finally, I was doing a podcast at a comedy club, and the owner said, why don't you do a set of comedy on the stage? And I said, sure. And so I did it, and everything else I was interested in fell away, and I became obsessed with I – would, I would literally, for six years, seven years, I performed three to ten times a week, traveled all over the country. Right before the pandemic, I was traveling all over um, uh, the Netherlands doing comedy. Wow. And it is it is scary and it's difficult because, uh, like you said, you're standing up in front of a room full of strangers. They might not like you, whatever, and you have to viscerally make them laugh. It's not like giving a talk where, you know, they're listening and you think they're listening. Where you have, Every 15 seconds or so, you want to hear them laughing and or else you feel bad. And you feel bad pretty quickly. And by the way, like you pointed out, it's hard to see someone messing up on stage. The audience is an x-ray machine. They know when you're screwing up. Even if you try to act confident, they could tell and they will punish you for it. And it's, it's, I've had some great experiences, the best experiences ever doing com- comedy because the, the dopamine is, is amazing. And it's really great to, to, to feel you have the ability to make people laugh. But also, I've had some very horrible experiences doing it, but I always came back to it. So then, number one, first of all, are you funny? I mean, I know it's you saying it, but subjectively speaking, do you think you're funny? I don't know. I mean, I make my kids laugh all the time. <laughs> and I make, I Your just made you laugh. Funny. I, you, you no, too, but. my mom does not think I'm funny. My mom, <laughs> my mom thinks I'm pathetic. But my kid and my kids think I'm funny, although... One of my kids will sense it if I'm doing something in public, I'm about to do something embarrassing. She'll be like, oh, no, and she'll, like, run away. But, um, no, I don't know. I, I mean, I was good enough to, to do it because – and, again, here, here's what you notice when you're doing comedy. I'm always, I'm always very interested in the process of learning anything, anything that's hard. And comedy, there's no such skill as stand-up comedy. Instead, there's humor – there's joke writing, which is different from humor. There's crowd work. Like I have to be able to interact with the crowd and, and make them laugh without any material. There's stage work. Like how do I move around on the stage? Can I do that in a funny way? Can I do funny things with my body and face and stuff? There's um, likability. If, if they like you, they'll laugh. If they don't like you, even if you're funny, they will not laugh. And there's so many different micro skills that have nothing to do with each other. And you kind of have to learn all of them to be a good comedian and then, and what's great when you get when you start to get better at something is that you then start to appreciate how the comedians you love 
how they are are good at the various micro skills. And I start to notice in each comedian which micro skills they're great at. Like Chris Rock's so great at stage work, the way he moves around the stage. Louis C.K. is like so absurd. Like he's just everything he says is like absurd, but but it feels normal. And uh, you know, and on and on and on. So uh I don't know. I'm, I always had a fun time doing it, whether I did poorly or not. It's scary as hell. And I, you know, I think it took a while, but I think I got most of the time people were laughing at what I was doing or they, yeah. they were just laughing at me, which sometimes could be fun as well. Well, first of all, I think that being a stand-up comic is the most difficult thing in the world for all of those reasons why you just said, right? Because there's so much to it. And to be really smooth and good at it is very difficult. I think Bill Burr is the best comedian. I love Bill Burr. I think he does. He's amazing. I love Bill Burr as well. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story. One time, Bill Bill Burr and I were performing on the same lineup. And the manager asked everyone or asked me beforehand, hey, do you want to go on before Bill Burr or after Bill Burr? Now, going on after Bill Burr is like a death sentence because everyone (laughs) just saw Bill Burr and he's the funniest guy in the world or one of them. And you're going on afterwards and they're thinking, who is this guy? I want Bill Burr back. Or going on Bill Burr before Bill Burr, I would have been able to do my normal set and get gotten people to laugh and have a normal experience. But you could only learn when you're challenging yourself. Like if you lift if you lift weights and you're used to lifting a certain weight and you only do five of them, it's easy. But if you push yourself to do something difficult, you're going to learn. So I always, whenever I had to go on after Bill Burr or Tracy Morgan or whoever, uh, I would always say, I want to go on immediately afterwards. And usually I would fail miserably, but the time after Bill Burr, I don't know, I picked up on his energy and I did really well. And they kept me going for a long time because they knew that it was hard to go on after him. So I was really, that was a happy night for me. That's Whereas going on, one, going on one time after, um, I don't know, like um, Judah Friedlander one time, he does a lot, he's really good at crowd work and going on, it's, Going on after someone who's really excellent at crowd work is very difficult because the crowd wants to still talk to you mm-hmm. and they know that you're going back to just doing your material and they can feel it a little bit more in a more nuanced way that you're just doing material. So it's very, and I can't do crowd work as well as what Judah Friedlander, he was on 30 Rock, he's a good comedian. And yeah. uh, uh, that was a hard one, but I had to figure it out. I, I went on after him several times until I kind of cracked crack the code there well okay so i i mean that's different i mean if bravo to you i mean if you're going on after bill even have the option of going on before or after bill burr or tracy morgan you have to be at least at a certain level right because i'm not gonna no matter i'm not going on i think i you know my mom thinks i'm kind of funny my friends think i'm funny but i'm not going on after bill burr no one i'm not even in that position so my point is you have to be at least good enough to even be in that into that thing. So bravo to you because yeah, you were, thank you were you. able to, you know, you're welcome. So I want to know, how did you overcome? How do, how do you, how did you overcome your fears? How do you tell other people to overcome their fears? And then we, you, you, you talked about it. And I wanted to ask you about micro skills because you talk about micro skills in your book. And yeah. I want to know what micro skills that you think that everybody should learn. So those are the two questions I have for you. Yeah. Great. Um, well, in terms of 
comedy, you, you, you never really, I'm, if I had to do comedy tonight, I would be afraid right now. I would be watching <laughs> comedians on YouTube, trying to pick up on their energy. I would be looking at my material over and over and over. My friends are sick of me calling them at the last minute. Like, do you, do you think this is funny? Like, uh, and I, and then right before going on stage, I would be thinking to myself, you know what? I don't have to do this. I'm just going to leave. No one's going to know. They'll announce me, but I'm never going to talk to them again. And that's that. And I would just leave like before. But so I'm always nervous. And then, but then I would go up there and you get used to it. Like you go up there and you grab the mic and suddenly you get like a lot of energy and I wouldn't feel nervous anymore. Now I would get nervous again later if I was messing up, but that was happening, you know, less and less frequently. And you also start to build uh, a kind of repertoire of comebacks. If the crowd is not reacting, mm. you know, like, I, I, I'm going to repeat a friend of mine's joke, but like he would go up there and if the audience was not laughing, he, he was like, listen, right before I came here, I just want you to know I was performing comedy at a children's cancer hospital. And one, you know, one little girl, I passed through him and she said, wait a second, are you, you know, his name was Brian. Are you Brian, the comedian? And he would say, yeah. And I, would go, I went in the room and entertained her and she said, can you play, can you please stay? And I had to say, no, I have to go to the New York comedy club now and perform in front of 17 people, but you know, good luck with everything. <laughs> and so I, and so I, then my friend who's the comedian, he would say to the audience, like, I could be, you know, I chose to come here instead of helping this. And then everybody would start laughing at, you know, his premise there. And right, uh, right, right. so you, so you develop kind of like a, a set of a toolkit for dealing with when the crowd's not, uh, reacting the way you want. And that, that helps a lot as well. So that helps you develop fears, knowing that, I mean, get rid of fears, knowing you have that toolkit and just the more skills you develop, uh, you know, of these micro skills, you know, you can fall back into like, you know, when I just had material, if the crowd didn't like my material, I was dead, but then you develop the skill of crowd work, meaning I could just say, Hey, you know, I, I bet you and this, I bet you and your boyfriend have been together three years. And usually you get to learn to read the audience pretty good. I'd be, I'd be pretty dead on because in the comedy club, one thing I noticed is that boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives, they, every inch apart, they sit from each other is the number of years they've been together. It's almost always true. And so I would call these things with dead on accuracy. And then that would be, you know, part of my crowd work. And, you know, I'd build from that. So once you develop crowd work, if the audience is quiet from my material, I could switch the crowd work, or I could switch to something more absurd or, or I could just do, or I could just say, screw it. I'm going to do something I know they're going to hate, but I'm going to like doing it. And I had some routines for that. And so you just, you just start developing kind of a, a repertoire of things to do in every situation. It's like, if X, then why? If the crowd, if, if half the crowd is making noise and this half the crowd is not, here's what you do. If there's one person who's drunk and yelling at you, here's what you do. Uh, right. if, every, if everybody's laughing hysterically, here's what you do. And so you just know, you, you know, like thousands of different situations of what to do. Well, yeah. I mean, but did you, did you build and learn micro skills that are kind of that you can kind of use that are kind of, you can bleed through any scenario. It could be comedy. It could be chess. It could be writing. I mean, cause you talk about these micro skills that everyone should be learning. What are those micro skills? Well, for, for each skill, for each skill, it's a different set of micro skills. Oh, there I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but 
like, for, let's say you want to get good at business. There's no such skill as business. There's coming up with ideas. There's executing ideas. There's negotiating. There's sales. There's marketing. There's motivating employees. There's raising money. There's selling the company. And on and on. There's follow up with customers. So these are all like negotiating has nothing to do with executing an idea. Um, but you have to learn all of these completely right. separate skills. But a good meta micro skill is realizing there every skill, every important skill has micro skills and then figuring out a training regimen for those micro skills and being disciplined enough to stick to that. And then another meta micro skill is let's say you want to get good at something. I, every time I want to get good at something, I immediately find a plus minus equal plus is someone who's like a coach to, t- to me uh, equals are people at your level who you're, you're improving with and you could cha- exchange notes and you, you bond with them. And a minus is someone you could teach because if you can't explain something simply, then you don't really understand it. So that's an, as soon as I decide, okay, I'm really interested in learning X. I get the, I, I find a plus minus equals for X. I don't waste any time because everything else is a waste of time. And so that's another meta micro skill. Another important thing, and this is maybe a little bit more of a specific micro skill, is understanding risk. So for anything that you love doing, there are we know that there are benefits in, in doing it. Like if you love investing, of course, there are people in love and people do investing because they want to make wealth. And but there's a but that's clear. But the key to winning the game is staying in the game. And the way you stay in the game is by learning how to always manage your risk and identifying what all the risks are in whatever activity it is and making sure you know how to deal with that risk. And, and, and I didn't understand that at first, for instance, with investing, which is why I would go broke. It took me a long time to understand just the concept of risk. But then I realized there's risk in everything you do. So even in writing, there's, you could take risks and uh, uh, in, in comedy, there are risks you can take and you have to, you know, you could decide you're going to do something completely off the wall, but you have to understand, is this a risk that's going to ruin the audience for you? Or is it going to ruin something else for you? Or you have to always understand what your risks are and what your, and at the same time, it's important to take risks or else you're never unique. And it's very important to be more important to be the only than to be the best. Because if you're the only, people remember you. But nobody could tell the difference. Like, let's take two comedians, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, or, or you know, Amy Schumer, Louis C.K. I can't tell which comedian necessarily is better. One might be 20% better than the other. But it's subjective. Everybody has different opinions. And it, you can't tell. But if someone is the only person who, let's say, only does comedy while at the same time rapping freestyle – that's unique. That's somebody who will will stand out. Uh, and 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 he, that person doesn't have to be the best comedian, doesn't have to be the best rapper, but it's so unique, it'll stand out. Whereas if you're going to follow the path of an Amy Schumer or a Louis C.K. or Chris Rock, you kind of have to be the best in the world unless you're doing something really unique. So it's very important to develop, to understand what is unique, what is different, what can you what can you discover as opposed to just learn. And that's an important micro skill in life is to really fix on what could, what can I do in, in, in this area that I love? What can I do that's unique to me as opposed to just better than everyone else?
That's such a good point. You know what? Because I talk about, the, you know, uh, we only watch shows like, you know, World of Dance or So You Think You Can Dance or, you know, American Idol. I'm just breaking it down to the most, yeah. you know, you know, easy ex- uh, example. And like, if, if, how do you judge who's a better dancer? You don't know. Like to the layman, to, you know, to the, to the common eye, like me, they're all amazing dancers, right. you know? Like, I'm not a judge to be a... I, so like the reality is, but when everyone's just really good, they're really, there's nothing that really stands out, right? Something has to be different for you to actually break through that wall, right? And that makes sense to me, actually. That's a really good way of putting it. So yeah, it's not really, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so it's not really important to be the best. As long as you're good enough, like r- good enough at something that, that has like also that like, added edge of uniqueness that's more important basically yeah like for me i'm i knew i wasn't going to be the number one comedian in the world or in the top 10 comedians in the world because i really was starting at a very older age say right and and but i had to really think like who am i and how am i different from the other people well i've had a lot of experience losing millions of dollars which most other comedians have not had, and I'm able to bring that to the stage. And it took me a while to figure out how to do that, but that's, you know, people come to see me, not necessarily because they think, oh, I got to see James Altucher, he's better than Chris Rock, but they come to see me because they like me and they want to hear my story in a funny way. And uh, so you do, I developed the skills of comedy, not enough to be in the top 10 in the world, but maybe to be in the top 1% of the world, which is a big difference. 60 million, 60 million people are in the top 1% of the world. Only 10 people are the top 10 comedians in the world. So I just need to be, let's say, let's say there's a million comedians. I just need to be in the top 10,000 to be in the top 1%, which is good enough to tour all over the world. And then if I bring something that's uniquely me, now I'm the top one uniquely me comedian. And uh, that's a big skip the line technique. And it's a big, um, that's that's a me, like a meta micro skill. That's a good question about what what meta micro skills are. That's a good meta micro skill. So always, I you know my one of my daughters uh, was applying to colleges and she got into some colleges, but not necessarily the ones she wanted. And uh, I said, why don't you take a year off and instead of just trying to improve your SAT scores or like everyone everyone is from you know the same area and they've all got the same SAT scores and they all got, you know, A's or good grades and they all work for a charity and played a sport. I said, why don't you take uh, racing car racing lessons? And so she she took car racing lessons. She got her car racing, her racing license. She participated in races and then she applied to schools again. She got into every school she applied to and she was unique. She didn't have to improve her grades or anything. That's actually a very, I, I love that you just said that because, oh my, I love that you just said that because we talk about this a lot, my friends and I, right? Because uh, my friends, my, uh, my friends who are a little bit older, have older children who are applying to your point, they're all going to great schools or all getting good marks. And then like, they're trying to get into all these schools, but the people at the end of the day, like the people who are actually getting in are the ones who stand out differently because at the end, if you're, you're the, your baseline is all the same by what you just said, right? They're all doing that. But no, how many people are car are doing car racing at, like at that age? Probably, probably none. 
Yeah, I mean, I was a horrible high school student. I was not in the top. I was. I don't even know if I was in the top 100 in my class. And uh, but I got into. I only and I only applied to one college. If I didn't, if I hadn't gotten in, I wouldn't have gone. Um, but I was. I was New Jersey. I was New Jersey's junior chess champion. So I, I got in. There was no issue at all. And right. that you, you know when you're going for you. Right, and and you only have to be good enough at something to make sure it's going for you in other areas of your life you care about. So like I've gotten jobs because of that same reason. I've got, I got into graduate school because of the same reason. And I didn't have to go on and be like world chess champion to get into college. I just had to be good enough to get other things I wanted in my life. And, and of course I loved it. I didn't do it artificially, but, uh, you know, things like, like if I, now, if I was applying to college, wouldn't it be amazing to say, oh, I toured stand-up comedy in the Netherlands. I would get into college from that. Like combining these things that you're interested in is always useful. Even now oh, in business, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur first and a writer and writing about these experiences or, or being an entrepreneur and getting people interested in my story. I have an interesting story because of these aspects. No, I think that is that's so accurate. I, I, that, that, and that can apply to anything and everything in life. Um, yeah. And, you know, so going back to that, first of all, I love, by the way, I love that positive, what, is it, what do you call that? That one technique, positive, neg, uh, positive, negative, equal. Is that the way you call yeah, it? Plus, no, plus, plus minus, minus equal. equal. Plus minus yeah. equal. Um, what is, bor- what is uh, borrow, borrowed hours, though? Is that, what do you mean okay, by so, that? So, so. I'll use comedy as, as an example. And I could use, I could use other things as an example, but I'll use comedy for a second. So I was a public speaker for a long time. I spoke, uh, I used to speak about financial stuff and then I was speaking, uh, not quite self-help stuff, but I would speak about my stories of going broke and bouncing back from it and the 10 ideas a day. So I was always invited to give talks at different places. I've given a Ted talk. I spoke at Google and my public speaking, um, I figured I'd, I've done my 10,000 hours in public speaking. I'll, I'll to be get good at comedy. I'm going to borrow hours from public speaking. Some of the time I put into getting good at that to get good at, uh, to apply it to comedy. So I wouldn't need those hours. Like for instance, when you're a public speaker, you get pretty good at being on the stage and dealing with your fear of speaking. And I would be able to bring that into comedy. That didn't really, that worked okay, but not great. But when I went from, after I did comedy for a while and I went back to public speaking, I taking the, the hours I had put into comedy super amped up my public speaking like that comedy 10 X my public speaking. And so I borrowed hours from comedy to even get better at public speaking. Or, you know, when I switched from playing a lot of chess to playing a lot of poker, I was able to borrow hours from the time I spent getting good at chess to get very good at poker very quickly. Because if I had just started poker from scratch without any experience in you know, kind of competitive game playing, I probably, it probably would have taken me much longer to get good at poker, but I've been able to take my experience in one game and borrow hours from it to get good at another game or my experiences in entrepreneurship. I borrowed hours from that to get good at investing because I'm able to, let's say, value a business in a different way than the average investor and things like that is borrowing hours. Right. So you're using your, your experience in one thing to help build the, to help kind of build another thing, kind of like in that 10,000 
hours to be an expert at something concept. I know that you don't, we'll get to that in a second, but that whole concept, but you're, you don't, you don't need to do 10,000 hours in one particular thing. You can take, you can take hours from different things that you're doing and apply them to that. Let's let's say I wanted to be, let's say I wanted to be the best in the world at poker. Well, it wouldn't take me 10,000 hours because maybe I already put in several thousand hours in chess. Right. That would, that would reduce, maybe I would need 5,000 hours in poker to be the best in the world at poker uh, because I'm borrowing hours from other disciplines. And so, you know, that, that's a, a simple example. But, you know, whenever you do something new, think about what you could borrow from other disciplines. And so I had one friend who uh, is very good at poker and she was able to borrow from her. She had a PhD in psychology and she was able to borrow from her experience in psychology to apply that to the, you know, figuring people out at the chess table, at the poker table. Right. That's great. And, and, but you don't love the whole 10,000 hour ideology, right? Like you're all about, was it, do you think 10,000 experiment rule, experiment rule? Yeah. Because because first off, you don't need 10,000 hour rules really about being the number one in the world. You need 10,000 hours to be the number one in the world. You don't need to be number one in the world to get, everything you want out of something you love, like to monetize it, to use it for other parts of your life and so on. You need to be in the top 1% or top 2%, which again is a much bigger number than being number one in the world. And so I, I, I don't believe in it for that reason, but the, the, the idea of experiments is always the idea of how do you be unique? So for instance, uh, and also how do, you, how do you put yourself through difficult situations so that you can learn much faster? So again, better to be the only rather than better or the best. So for instance, when I was getting good at, at comedy, one experiment I did, the important aspect of an experiment, it's got to be cheap or free and it's got to have little or zero downside and it has to have huge upside. So, you know, a great example is Thomas Edison. He supposedly experimented with 10,000 different wires before he could light his first light bulb and very little downside just move on to the next wire. Very, very cheap. These wires cost nothing. And the huge upside, which is he lit the world literally and had a, started a huge company, General Electric. And uh, uh, with comedy, for instance, or, or, or okay, let's, take it, let's take entrepreneurship as a different example. Let's say I have a theory. And my theory is that uh, if I design a, I'm going to be a fashion designer. And if I design a jacket, with, I don't know, 27 pockets. And each pocket is going to, like, one's going to have a zigzag zipper, another's going to have a straight zipper, another's going to have buttons, another's going to have, like, Chinese-style buttons. And so I just have this weird idea for a jacket. And so, you know, I need to do an experiment with that's cheap and easy with little downside and huge upside. I don't want to make a 1,000 jackets and stock a warehouse and raise money and then start the business. I want to do an experiment to see if this is a good idea. So let's make a picture of the jacket using Photoshop and make a Facebook ad to use a $50 budget, put it up on Facebook and see if I get any clicks. It doesn't have to click through to a website. I'll be able to use the analytics just to see how many clicks I get. And it's only right. a $50 budget. And if nobody clicks, okay, what that, what's the downside? This was not a good idea. And I learned about Facebook ads. I learned about fashion design a little bit. And I learned this is a stupid idea for a jacket. If, and if it gets about 2 or 3% click-through rate, which is enormous, 
then I also have the huge upside that I could start a business. I'll start selling this. I'll find customers among my friends and then community and then so on. And so that's a kind of experiment. With, with comedy, I did an experiment once. I wanted to get really good at one-liners so that I get very quick to the left. So I went on a subway and started doing stand-up on a subway, which is very scary because it's, it's also experimenting with dealing with a hostile audience. And, you know, that's an experiment. There was no downside, really, even though it felt scary because nobody would know who I was. And the upside is I would get really good at, like, high-stress situations on a stage. And there was even more upside. I enjoyed it doing it so much, even though I was scared at first, that I shot an entire talk show format on a subway and pitched it to an agent as a talk show and they rejected it. But you know, that could have had huge, that experiment could have had huge upside. I could have had my own talk show on a subway if they liked it. I love the fact that you're so resilient too. Like you don't let someone saying no to you just stop you or something not, not working out for you, stop mm -hmm. you. You kind of keep on like on to the next thing, like as Jay-Z says, like, you know, on to the next one. Like what, how do you, what, what, how do you teach someone that skill of like, keep on trying, keep on moving, not, not, not kind of getting, getting stuck and stop at the no, you know, like, okay, it didn't work out. I'll try this. Or if I can't go through the window, I'll go through the door. If I can't go through the door, I'll jump. You know what I mean? Like you're, that's how you, you seem to kind of like live your life. Yeah. And, it, and the thing is, first off, there's no avoiding disappointment. Like if you go up on stage, I'll, I, I'm always using comedy as an example here, but if you go up on stage and everyone boos you, you're going to be sad and depressed, but you go back the next day because you love doing something, which is why it's really important to do what you love. It, you know, people say, oh, you don't have to do what you love. That's ridiculous. But it's not true. If, if, if I didn't like, for instance, I love writing and I've written a bunch of books. If I didn't love writing, then some of the energy required to write, I would have to use in another way. I would have to use that extra energy to convince myself to write every day because I don't love it. You all just sit down. You'll be famous if you write. You have to, I would have to talk myself into it. And instead, I'm able to use that valuable energy to just write because I love doing it. I don't need to convince myself to do it. And the same thing with don't do comedy if you don't love it. Don't be an entrepreneur if you don't love the idea of it, even though there's suffering involved. It's not a happy experience. Right, exactly. But um, also important to note, it's not resilience, really, because resilience is, okay, it didn't work out. I'm going to try again. But I'll, I'll refer to Thomas Edison again. A reporter asked him, how does it feel to, to fail 10,000 times in a row when you were trying to make a light bulb? And he said, no, uh, I did not fail 10,000 times in a row. I learned 10,000 different ways to not make a light bulb. So he wasn't just resilient. He, he, you have to learn from every, you have to treat every bad experience like an experiment that you learn from. So to get better, to get better, for instance, at chess, you take a game that you lost, which is a very depressing experience, and you analyze every move of it and learn from it. What you, could you have done differently? What could my opponent have done differently? And then you go over that with your plus, with a coach, and you actually become a much better player because you look at the, the, the games that you lost. The games that you won, by the way, are not that interesting to analyze, but the games that you lost are always interesting because what right. part of your thinking was flawed that you lost this game and you try to patch that or, or improve it. And 
So, so this is Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility, not just resilience, but you know, the cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And mm-hmm. I think the only way to really do that is a, you have to do what you love doing. You're not always going to love it, but in general, you have to love it. And, and B, you just have to remind yourself, okay, this was a bad experience. I'm feeling bad now. What can I learn from this? You just have to be very disciplined about reminding yourself there must be something I can learn from this, even if it's just dealing with depression. But because you're going to be depressed a lot if you do a hard activity. And whether it's entrepreneurship, investing, backgammon, comedy, writing, acting, violin, you know, you're going to have very depressing moments. And so you have to always remind yourself, how can I get at least 1% better from this bad negative experience? Do you think you can teach that to somebody or do you think people have that innately in them? Right. I I didn't have it innately in me and I didn't have it innately at all. Like I, I had a very, and I still do to an extent, like I have to fight this, you know, there's something like called a fixed mindset where as opposed to a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. So if a kid is a fixed mindset, they think they're a genius. Everybody tells them you're such a genius. And then as soon as they fail a test, they collapse. They're like, they can't believe it because I thought I was a genius. I thought that was part of who I was. Right. And a growth mindset is, okay, I messed something up. I need to learn. And I think I had a very much a fixed mindset on everything I did. And I would just get really, really. And then when I lost all my money, when I thought I was so smart, I, lost, I sold the company. I made money. I lost everything down to zero. I had to really you know, teach myself that, okay, it maybe I'm not a genius and I have to just really work hard like everyone else and, and learn things and, and be a good person and, and try harder and, and, and everything I do, I always get really disappointed if I don't succeed right away. Cause probably too many people told me I was smart when I was a kid. Cause I had glasses and curly hair or whatever. And, <laughs> uh, so I look smart. I, I swear to God, one, I, when one time I went to take the SATs and I was, you know, my hair was all over the place. I, I had glasses. People like literally parted down the hallway where I walked. I just looked like I was going to score 1600 on the SATs, which I did not do. And uh, so, so it, it's been a hard thing for me to have a more of a growth mindset. I don't think, I don't think it's innate. I think you have to really, train yourself to, to have that kind of mindset to, to, you know, an anti-fragile growth mindset. So I think that like a couple of things, number one, um, do you believe in talent then? Do you think people are innately talented or they, they can, anyone can train themselves to, to do anything. It's more about desire than talent. Yeah. It depends what you mean. You know, like, there's I mean, like, aside from being like a basketball player in yeah. the NBA, okay, unless you're like four foot 10, you're not going to be, you know, playing with LeBron James, but I'm saying yeah. within reason. Yeah, I think, I think it's much more, much, I think there is such thing as talent, but that you won't succeed at anything without 90% work, 10% talent. So I used to know this kid uh, in the chess world. I, I was roommates with his brother. It was this 11 year old kid. And he was maybe the most talented chess player in world history, but is, he's totally unknown. He would he would crush. Eleven years old. I I I don't know if I ever saw him lose lose a game. And 
I would talk to him after his games and he would explain the things to me like so far above my head. And I was already like a, a master level player. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with this guy's brain? Like he's such a, how did he get to be such a genius without, he must've been born that way. But right, then right, right. when he started playing competitively and started playing in tournaments and occasionally he would lose against people who worked really hard, he, he flipped out. He couldn't handle it. And he just stopped, he immediately stopped playing and never played again. So wow. it really, ta- it really takes to be good at something. It takes a much more hard work psychology. And when I say hard work, I could, you could still use the skip the line techniques and get in the top 1% really quickly, but to be the best in the world at something, you know, takes t- it, work is much more important than talent doing, ex- doing these experiments, getting the plus minus equals, figuring out the micro skills, figuring out the psychology, figuring out risk. These are much more important things than than talent. Uh, talent can be beaten, but but work cannot. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think I, I, I'm in agreement with you. By the way, you keep on mentioning and you talk about this a lot, but you were like totally you sold these companies for millions of dollars and then you became broke. Um, if you how did you become broke? If you sold these companies for millions of dollars, what where did you spend your money on? I didn't over, I don't really over spend, again. Yeah, I didn't really spend money on anything. I just I didn't really understand about. I thought I, I, I always thought if I was smart at this, I'm going to be smart at at other things. So I would sell a company, and oh, I'm, I must be really smart. So I'm going to start investing and make a lot more money. And and I didn't even really. I would look at other people who made more money than me, and I I I try to invest enough to make even more money than them. I was really stupid. And I didn't respect risk. I didn't start to become a good investor until I understood what risk meant. And again, the way to win the game is to stay in the game. And I would just, I would go for everything thinking I'm smart enough. I don't need to stay in the game that long. I'm just going to do this one thing and make it all. And boom, I would always lose it all. I would just lose that money really fast. I mean, like more than $10 million I would lose in a summer and that would be all the money I had. I'd go, I went from $15 million to $143 in my bank account. And I lost my home, just lost everything. I mean, everything. And wow. I, I really, I got really depressed. And, and this happened more than once, happened like three times. Is that like a gambling thing? Do you have like a gambling addiction or what is that? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's like gambling because I don't really like to, I like to play poker, but I don't like to gamble. They're different. I've never really been a gambler in a casino, but maybe it is like a gambling thing, or maybe it's some kind of insecurity that I'm not really rich until I have X. And then when I get X, no, 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 I need X times 10. And I would be too greedy. And I would think I was poor all the time. I had some sort of problem. And, uh, uh, but I, I, it's really just, it's hard to manage risk. And I was much more of a risk taker than I should have been. And now I've gone completely in the other direction where you take calculated risk. It's certainly risky to spend, you know, a thousand hours doing stand-up comedy in a year as opposed to career things, but you learn to manage your risks accordingly. And, and, you know, risk is really the most important meta skill here, like understanding how to be, how to to manage the risks of your time, your money, your energy, your relationships, how to understand, um, you know, how to bounce back stronger is an important meta skill, but I had to, I had to learn these things cause I didn't have them. I got, I, 
I lost everything. I didn't bounce back for years. I was just depressed for years. So really, how long were you depressed for? I would say depressed to the point where I couldn't do anything for not that many years, but like two. And, you know, it was only when I started writing the 10 ideas a day that I started to be less depressed. But then I think for that whole next decade, I was anxious all the time. And, you know, it just, I had to really figure out how to live in the moment a lot better, a lot more. And, you know, all these cliche things, but they're really, they really are true that, you know, life's difficult. And there are ways though, you could learn to manage your time and learn to not live in the past where you regret all the time or not to live in the future where you're anxious all the time, but to focus on what you could do this moment to improve your situation and, and, and also to surrender to what you can't control. I couldn't control that moment. What was in my bank account when I had nothing left, I couldn't magic. I remember one time I saw a psychiatrist and he said, how can I help you? And I said, the only thing that could help me is if you give me a check for a million dollars right now. And he said, you know what? My guess is that's not going to help you very much. And he probably was, was right. Like I needed to, I needed to discipline myself and, and learn all these, all these things about bouncing back and about coming back stronger and about risk and, and about living more in the moment and, and all these things that are in the book, skip the line about, about learning things quickly, because I would switch careers a lot to try to figure out how to bounce back and, and so on. So what was like, what would be some of the things you do daily to kind of keep you in the right headspace to kind of make sure that doesn't to, to, to kind of like um, help with the anxiety or the, or, or all those things that you were saying, do you have like yeah. a list of things you do? Yeah. Four things. And, but they have sub things. One is exercise the creativity muscle by writing 10 ideas a day. Right. If you don't do that, you won't have good ideas. Um, very important is every day. Am I trying to improve my physical health? Because if you're sick in bed, you're not going to have good ideas or right. if you have good ideas, you won't be able to execute on them. So like, and what's, what's health just breaking it down simply, you know, more than me, but basically sleep, eat, and exercise. So sleep eight hours a day, eat, you know, as well as I can. I'm not, the mo I'm not a nutritionist, but I try, I try to eat well. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a big gym person, but I try to stay modestly in shape so I don't get sick. And then, so that's physical, so physical, creative health, emotional health. If you're all the time arguing with your spouse, you're not going to have the energy to have good ideas and or to execute them. So, you know, they sit, there's a cliche, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. I make sure those five people are positive people who I encourage me in my dreams and I encourage them in their dreams and we're supportive of each other. And, you know, not just five people, but, you know, then there's their five friends and their five friends. So emotional health is very important. And then some degree of spiritual health, which just means, you know, trying not to control, trying to surrender to the things you can't control. And so those four things, physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health, every day at the end of the day, I ask myself, did I, did I work on those four things every day? And that's how I keep going. And when I stop doing that, I always screw it up again. Right. And so you're pretty diligent about doing those things, like those yeah. components. Yeah. What, 
um, I didn't, I, we, I got sidetracked, but I forgot to ask you a couple of things that I was curious about for product, like for productivity. We were talking about, you, you say something about like the 51 rule. What is that? So do you know the 80, have you ever heard of the 80, 20 rule? Of course. Of yeah. Course, so, yes. so it's the idea that for people who don't know who are listening, you know, uh, it started off with 20% of the seeds that you plant. Let's say you plant 100 seeds in your garden. Only 20 of them will create about 80% of the flowers that bloom. And in in work, uh, 80% of the profits will probably come from 20% of the employees. In uh, in in everything in life, like uh, trying to think of you know 20 like if you're a student, 20% of the things you study will probably create 80% of the correct answers on the tests you take and, and on and on. Like you have to figure out the right 20% that creates 80% of the value. 20% of your customers will create 80% of your revenues if you're in business. And so you have to figure out the right 20% to create the 80%. But the idea is if you figure out that 20%, you could be a lot more productive in one fifth the time. And so the interesting thing is though, you could apply the, you could apply the 80-20 rule to the 80-20 rule. So once you find that 20% that creates 80% of the value, and I don't mean to get too much into the math, but 4% of the seeds you plant will create 60, 64% of the flowers. It's 80-20 rule times the 80-20 rule. <laughs> and then if you do it one more time, it turns out that about 1% of the seeds you plant will create 50% of the value. If you think about it, think of the average business. 1% of the employees is going to create 50% of the revenues. And that sounds crazy until you think, well, probably the CEO of the company helped generate 50% of the revenues or, or, or you know, the founder of the company probably helped right. generate 50% of the revenues. And 1% of the effort you put into something, there, if you find the right 1%, will create 50% of the value. So there might be, like, let's take comedy. It's a little harder to think about in terms of comedy, but it might be that one, there's some idea you have that that idea will create 50% of the laughter you get in comedy or in chess. You might understand, you might know a lot of things in chess, but there might be one thing you're really good at. 1% of all your knowledge in chess might create 50% of your wins. And, and so it, it must exist that way because the 80, 20 rule has been shown to exist in almost every area of life. And it's just applying the 80, 20 rule to itself twice. So that's the 50 slash one rule. I love that. So then, um, one thing what I wanted to ask you. Uh, about I'll, I'll give you. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll give you an example from fitness. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep on going. So from fitness. I it, love how fitness. You can always. Yeah. Go ahead. I let's love say it. my. Let's say my main goal is to broaden my shoulders. So <laughs> I I I swim. I run. I I lift weights. I you know do squats, whatever. Run but, and squatting but, won't bro broaden your shoulders. Right, right. But maybe can. it's just that maybe it's just that one exercise though where you have a weight on every arm and you hold out your arms horizontally and then back to your waist and you just do that. That might be I would just 1%. do pull ups. How about pull ups? Uh, you, um, you're the fitness instructor. You tell me. Is that fitness is that, I have a fitness instructor. So yeah. that that's the one percent then that creates fifty percent of the value of of, of of getting me to broaden my shoulders. Oh, so that's the one thing that isn't that called like the one thing, like what kind of like, whole, well, like that, kind of like honing it into the exact thing. It's like, 
you know, for golf, right? Like everyone thought you you had to work your torso and you had to work your, ch- you know, your shoulders to be a good golf player. But then they figured out like actually really great golfers have a really strong like like leg strength. They have a yeah. really strong trunk. So once they figured out, dialed in what really kind of like creates the big change, isn't that kind of what it is? Isn't that Sim- like honing in on the exactness? It might not be one thing, might be m- multiple things, but it's 1% of all the things you could do. Got so as, as opposed to 20% to create 80% of the value, now you're only getting 50% of the value with this 1%, but you might not need more than 50% of the value. Who knows? No, I like that. That's okay. I, I, I'll go with that. That's good. So from the chess experience, when you were, you know, because you are a chess master, what, what skills did you learn from chess that you were able to kind of use with everything else? Like the micro skills or what else, meta skill, like what did you use from that or borrow t- your, your borrow time from that time yeah. that you used everything else? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, there's a saying in chess, when you find a good move, find a better move. So a lot of times people in life or in business or whatever, they have a good idea and they say, let's do it. But when you find one good idea or one good thing to do, there's probably something a little better you can do. And in chess, you look at the board, you find a good move. I can guarantee you there's always a better move to do. Not always, but 99% of the time. And so that's an important thing to remember, like with everything, that I do, uh, uh, you know, here's an idea for a product. Okay, let's just push on it a little more. What's a better product to do? Uh, and that helped me a lot in, in business. Like so a client would ask for something and I would do what they asked, but I would always just do it a little better. And that's how I would keep the client. Uh, in Chester's are saying, the threat is stronger than the execution. So if I'm negotiating with you uh, in business, it's not like I'm going to say, well, I quit, but it's like, I might say, look, uh, I see a lot of my friends out there who have similar skills to me are making more money. And I just wanted to have a conversation with you about that. So there's like an implicit threat in that. Like if you're the boss and I'm an employee and I want more money from you, I just gave you a little bit of a threat that I might leave. Now, I didn't just say, hey, I'm going to quit if you don't give me more money. That's that's executing. That's going too far. So in chess, if you just threaten to check me, if you, if you threaten to take someone's piece, they have they're the ones who are obligated to respond. You're just threatening. They have to actually do something that could weaken themselves in order to respond to your threat. But you don't have to actually do anything yet. And so so that's an important concept: is that the threat is stronger than the execution. And the other thing, just in chess, you have to you have to think hard. You have to you have to be willing to think uh, one step ahead of the person you're playing against your opponent and and you have and you have to be ruthless about it you have to think i'm going to destroy i'm going to literally annihilate this person and i'm going to do it by thinking m- deep more deeply than him or her and uh, ironically the last game i played in a tournament was against this 13 year old girl who whose name was irena crush and she crushed, she crushed me completely. And then afterwards said, I think you made a mistake on move nine. And then I just quit playing. Like that was that. <laughs> but uh, although, although now I'm, I'm, I'm playing again. So we'll see what happens for the, for the first time in like 30 years, I'm, I'm studying the game again. And uh, so 
I, I immediately got myself a plus minus equals and put together the micro skills and my training regimen. And, and, you know, I wanted to get better than I was before, which is difficult. Uh, wow. as you, as you get older, you get worse. Your mental abilities start to slow down. Your memorization, memorization is very important in chess. Um, but you know, there's, there's things like that, like being able to, to push yourself just a little bit harder, like look for that extra hard move or, or to think in terms of, to see more strategic things happening. Yeah. You know, ch- chess is not a battle of moves. It's a battle of ideas and you have to have more ideas than your opponent and you have to have better ideas and then it becomes a battle of ideas. And so I think that helps me in terms of why I think, why I initially thought, you know, developing 10 ideas a day is so important so that I'm always abundant with ideas and I always understand the ideas or always try to understand, you know, chess, chess is a prophylactic game. Like part, a big part of the game is making sure your opponent cannot succeed at what he wants to do. So that means I have to understand what my opponent wants to do. And then I have to hop, come up with ideas to stop my opponent and at the same time advancing my own agenda. So let's say I'm in, in business and I'm competing against someone. I have to really understand at a deep level what what are their ideas? What do they want to be the best at in their business? What do they want to be unique at? And we're both going for the same client. How can how can I contend with their ideas with this client? Like what what do I have to say? And so that's where I borrow hours from writing. Writing and is really good. It makes you a good communicator. So understanding my opponent's ideas plus understanding how to communicate might make me help me communicate with the customer so that I can say, hey, you don't really need these other ideas, but you need the ideas I have to offer. So these are where you start combining the skills and then throw in a joke from comedy and you get the deal. Yeah. yeah. That's a, I, I would imagine just from your experience with chess as, as a young kid, that would have, that <laughs> makes sense of why, how you kind of evolved and morphed into even to how you even wrote this book, you know, 30 years later, right? Because it's so much about thinking, you know, thinking one step, thinking multiple steps ahead, learning how to strategize, thinking about that, being like all of those things are so, they're, they're, they can, they help you in so many areas of your life, it, the discipline, you know, goals, all that stuff. But what, what's interesting is, so the last time I studied the game in, in a serious way, and last tournament I played was in 1997. And now it's 2021, uh, much older, obviously. And your brain changes or, or loses certain mm-hmm. muscles. Like my memory is not as good. And my ability to calculate moves ahead is nowhere near that of like how I was in 1997. And so I have to learn a different skill set. And it's interesting because I have to learn um, maybe philosophically more about the ideas of the game than just memorizing like huge amounts of knowledge or or being sure that I could calculate my way out of any bad situation. And again, it reminds me of fitness because when you're young, you could build muscle, you could exercise, you have more energy. But when you're trying to get in shape when you're older, it's a different type of experience. You have to um, you have to treat your body differently as you as you exercise and stay in shape because the body's changed and your mind's changed. And it's the same thing. Like I have to learn a completely different game now to get back to the, even the level I was in 1997 because I cannot I cannot recreate those skills that I had then. Those were younger person skills. Yeah. Now I'm an older person. Totally. 
That's a great analogy and hundred percent. That's exactly true. So what are you doing? How, what are the, how are you kind of getting the skills? What are you doing differently with chess? Well, I'm doing all the same things that are important, like the plus minus equal. I have a coach, I have people I teach and I have equals, right. uh, I've got micro skills that I've broken yeah. apart. Boring you know, hours, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. But I really have to focus a lot more on understanding the ideas of each type of position. Because if I just try to memorize what I'm supposed to do, given this, what am I supposed to do here? I used to be able to memorize that. I can't, I can't do that anymore. My memory is not the same. So it's I have like to the really- under- stuff. It's the risk yeah. stuff you're talking about. Like- yeah, I have, to, I have to really understand the ideas enough so that even if I don't remember what to do, I'll be able to figure out very easily what to do because I understand deeply, much more deeply what's happening. And that's really the, that's really the key is, is being able to understand ideas more than just calculating moves ahead. I have to get myself into situations now where I, where I can win without calculating too many moves ahead. So I have to, again, that's a matter of understanding the ideas more than the opponent so that I know that, oh, he's going down a bad avenue even though he doesn't realize it and I know what the right avenue is as opposed to like calculating every single move, 20 moves deep. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, this has been so uh, informative. I really enjoyed having you on this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad we, we were able to arrange this. Oh, me too. I mean, you, you're like just a, a fountain of information. Thank I mean, you. No, you're welcome. I want to read your other books too now. I mean, Choose Yourself. You've got a, bu- you got a bunch of books that, um, and you said this one is, of course, your favorite to date of, of, um, of writing. And for all, I mean, this is the one I've read of yours. And if your other books are like this, I'm going to be very, very pleased. I think, I think Choose Yourself is good. Um, and then I think a lot of my books are pretty bad. But Choose Yourself is good. Uh, there's, one, there's this one that wasn't very popular, but called the Choose Yourself Stories. I think that one's okay. Uh, but yeah, those Choose Yourself and Skip the Line are, are good ones to start with. I'm going to do Choose Yourself next because I, like I like the title anyway. You mean? Yeah, and, and the idea is, is that all your life you want to be chosen for something like, oh, am I, did I get accepted into college? Did I get accepted into graduate school? Did, I get, did they like me at the job interview? So true. Uh, did, when I wanted to get a TV show, did they choose me? And ultimately, you have to figure out the ways around that so that the gatekeepers don't stop you. So as an example, I self rather than try to go, I, I've published many books with regular publishers and Skip the Line actually is published through HarperCollins. But Choose Yourself, I self-published on Amazon to prove that I didn't need a publisher. And that's my best-selling book ever by far. Really? Yeah. That one sold over a million copies and I didn't have any publisher. So no way. Yeah. A million copies with yeah. self-published? Self-published self-published books do well. You know what's so interesting? I mean, it depends. I that's so interesting. I have, you know, I'm writing my fourth book right now. Um, I did this is all with publishers, except one. The one I didn't do with a publisher, I did with a co- another company uh called Habit Nest, did really well. Um and it's interesting. Like I feel like sometimes doing it now in the, in today's time, being self-published, you have more opportunity to sell sell books because you have all the. It's different, right? You use social media, you use collaborations, you do all, you go on podcasts. Yeah, and you make more absolutely. money. Like like I I would I would uh, make deals with email lists where I would adjust the price or I'd write an extra chapter and 
you know, I could experiment with adjusting the price really low, really high, see what happens. It, it, and the publisher was willing to try things. It's just slower. It's a different type of decision-making process. And I really, I love the publisher I'm working with. I, my editor is great. I've worked with her several times. And, you know, it's just a different experience. Self-publishing, particularly now that people aren't in bookstores as much, they're just finding your things on Amazon. Yeah. And then I did an experiment last year. Somebody did a docu-series based on choose the ideas and choose yourself. So it was like eight episodes or six episodes, something like that. And he was like, what should I do with this? The world shut down. Hollywood shut down. I can't sell this docuseries. And I said, why don't you self-publish it? Meaning he just uploaded it to Amazon Prime and it looks like any other Amazon Prime show, Choose Yourself. And uh, it did very well. And then, and then we did another experiment. I called up a movie theater chain that was open in the South. And, and I said, can I release the first episode of this uh, in the movies? And this was like in June, 2020. So the pandemic was really, so it made just a few thousand dollars, but it was in the top 10 box office for that weekend. No <laughs> so, way. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's, uh um, those are, that's amazing. There's always ways to choose yourself. That's, that's the uh, example of that book. And I, and I'd start that book starts with me going broke and then having to choose myself instead of waiting for someone to just give me money. So. No kidding. Hold, I can't, but first of all, the title is so good that like who wouldn't click on that if they saw that title, right? Yeah. Like, and, oh, and even doing that title was an experiment because I came up with that. I wanted to do, I wanted to do the choose yourself era. And I kept thinking, so that sounds like error instead of era, like yeah. E-R-R-O-R. And then a friend of mine who was who has a, a publishing company now, Tucker Max, he was like, why don't you call it Pick Yourself? And then another friend of mine, Ryan Holiday, who's really great yeah. at marketing books and writes a lot He's of books. He's been on here too many times, yeah. Yeah, so he had another idea for a title. So we made Facebook ads with each of our titles, plus we had a Facebook ad for Just Choose Yourself. And that got like 80% of the clicks. I think Pick Yourself was second, the Choose Yourself era was third, and Ryan's idea was fourth. And that's how I picked the title, Choose Yourself. Hold on. So, so that's, I, that's an amazing idea. I'm going through this right now with my fourth book. I'm like, what am I going to call it? We're going back and forth and back and forth. And I guess, can, can we, can you do that? If it's a book that's going to be published with a publisher, like doing a. Yeah. As long as they're willing to accept the results of the experiment. Uh, you know, I probably should have done that with this book. I, I didn't do that. And there, maybe there would have been better titles than skip the line. I love uh, that name. Did you think of that late, that I, title I, too? I did, yeah. But I was torn between that and I was also thinking of the 10,000 experiment rule because there was something kind of interesting to me about that. But I don't know. I should have tried a bunch of ideas and done the same technique. Make a, a cheap Facebook ad for each one and see how many people click through. Because ultimately, we're just guessing. It's good to have data on these things. You know, there's Absolutely. A, there's, John Doerr wrote this book, uh, Measure What Matters. The title of your book matters. That's the first thing people see about your book. So it's important to measure stuff like that. And I made the mistake of not measuring that for this book. Well, is this book selling well or how is it doing? It's it's still selling well, Um, but maybe it would have sold even better if I had the best, you know, if you have a good title, find a better title. I could have really maybe tried to find the best possible title. I think this is a good title too. It was my idea of the title, but maybe I should have pushed myself a little harder. Uh, I, I, and, and I didn't, 
I thought I thought the title was so when I first heard it, it was like so clever, so good. And also it's like pause, like skip the line. It sounds happy and like skipping and like doing yeah. something good. You know, there's no like not there's no negative connotation. Like they say don't put words like don't do this or like, you know, no or whatever. That if it's like a positive connotation or a happy connotation, it does well. And choose yourself. I mean, that's like, I think that's like gonna, I think that's an amazing title. I cannot believe you sold a million copies. How old is the book? Uh, it came out in 2013, in June okay, of 2013. So, so it's like did eight you years. Eight years. Did you sell the majority of it in the last couple of years because of what's going on or? No, no. I mean, the first, the first few months I sold about 200,000 copies and, uh, uh, and then it just kept, I, I get, it's great because I also saw sold a lot of audio. I mean, the audio book and, um, as audibles gotten bigger and bigger, I, I still get uh, every month. I sell more audio books of that than regular books. Do you, have, you, you must be a good digital marketer. You know how to like, you must be doing something to get the algorithm and getting the, the people to even see the title. No, or. No, plus minus equal. So I work with people better than me and yeah. I learn from them. So, so I'm okay at digital marketing, but I really try to learn from the master. So I always ask people a lot of questions about marketing. That's amazing. Because like marketing and copywriting, these are like really, you can make a lot of money with those if you're great at those things. Like maybe I'm top two or 3%, but there are people who are like top 10 in the world. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. You're so interesting. My God. Um, thank you for coming on this podcast. And like, maybe we can have you again when you write your 21st, like, you know, your 21st book or, you know, you'll have another yeah. 40 books before you're like, before next year anyway. I don't know. I mean, right now I'm really focused on getting better at chess and that's been, that's been very difficult and very consuming. Uh, I can imagine. But, you know, who knows? That's been about six or seven months now no more like eight months and uh you know we'll see how much longer i i stay interested in it but did, so far so did good you, did you get interested because you saw the queen's gambit like everybody else and now everybody's playing chess again or or starting yeah. to yeah 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 well what happens i saw the queen's gambit and then i started playing online again and i realized oh my god i'm not as good as i used to be like i'm significantly i've lost right. some skills and so now I'm probably better than I was at my peak, but I want to get even better. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, wow. Yeah. And like, you know, 70 million people joined chess.com after the Queen's Gambit. So there's a huge audience for streaming and, yep. and all this kind of stuff. So I figured, okay, I'm already good at this. I might as well see how far I can go with it. Wow. So we'll, well see. Thank you again. How do people find you? I mean, you probably much you know, they find your book, skip the line on Amazon or wherever yeah, books or just, are sold. Yeah. Uh, swear Google my name or whatever. They can find me on, on, on the habits and hustle podcast. This is the yes. best place to find me right now. There As of go. today, this is the best place to find me. <laughs> As of today <laughs> and tomorrow I'll be somewhere else. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.